So last week, we met Isaiah, one of the major prophets of the Hebrew Bible and a source of much of what we know about the Messiah. We focused on the first four chapters of his book because there we find a microcosm of some of his major themes. Uh, I, the Lord, love my people and have done everything possible for them. But they scorn me and treat me like a common idol. They look to other nations for protection, not to me. They crush the poor and pervert justice. So I will give them what they desire. I will whistle to the other nations and they will come and utterly destroy Judah. Now that, that verse about whistling is in a couple of different chapters in Isaiah. And I pulled it in here because I think this imagery is so helpful um, as part of the overview of Isaiah's main themes. My people will be exiled, taken captive and abused. So all of this should sound just like what we heard from Joel and Amos already. It should, you know, sound a little familiar. And both Amos and Isaiah talk about the haughty, self-absorbed women and the cruel, unjust leaders. And all three prophets have talked about the ominous day of the Lord. But they've also talked about the Lord having pity on his people and how he will gather them all back and restore them and dwell with them in that day. I will gather my people back and will cleanse them. I myself will dwell in Zion and all nations will stream to Jerusalem. Nations will not go to war ever again. They will never again even train for war. So here's where we are. Israel has had a series of coups, and the current guy on the throne is named Menahem. He's as evil as Jeroboam I, the one way back who originally set up those two golden calves. And Menahem continues to lead Israel into idol worship. But then something truly terrifying happens. There's a new king in Assyria named Tiglath-Pileser. And he decides to cut his teeth on Israel. In 2 Kings, he's called Pool, which is what the Babylonians east of Assyria call him. This particular attack is in 743 BCE, according to Assyrian archaeological records. And Menahem of Israel is in his sights. Menahem quickly scrambles to pull together a thousand talents of silver. That is an astronomical sum. And he does it by taxing all the rich people in Israel because no one else has any money. And the temple and the palace treasuries had been ransacked years earlier by other invaders. And in the end, what Menahem pulls together is enough. And the king of Assyria withdraws. Menahem dies just three years later, and his son, Pekahiah, becomes king of Israel. Pekahiah continues leading Israel in idol worship, just as his father did. He only reigns two years before a powerful official, a guy named Pekah, leads a conspiracy to overthrow him. 
Pekka and 50 other men assassinate Pekahiah right there in the palace at Samaria. It's kind of an etou brute scene from Caesar. At this point, Second Kings says Pekah reigns 20 years, but elsewhere in scripture, we discover he's actually king of Israel for only eight years. So as best scholars can tell, 12 years ago, when Menahem assassinated Shalom, Pekah set himself up as a sort of rival governor over in Gilead across the Jordan. And it's only just now, around 740 PCE, that Pekah is strong enough to overthrow Menahem's son, Pekahiah. Now we're going through kings in Israel so fast, I'm running out of room on the chart here. And all this time, King Uzziah has reigned in Judah. Well, sort of. He was mostly a good king until he tried that stunt with the incense in the holy place. But as soon as he broke out in leprosy, they bundled him off to a separate house of his own and his son Jotham has effectively been ruling Judah for the past 10 years. Eventually, though, Uzziah dies. And in 740 BCE, the same year Pekah comes to the throne in Israel, Jotham officially becomes king of Judah. And in that same year, Isaiah has one of the most amazing visions of his life. It's recorded in chapter six of his book. He sees the Lord high above, sitting on a throne with the skirt of his train, brushing the temple, filling it up. And above the Lord are two seraphim, each one with six wings. With two wings, they cover their faces. With two wings, they cover their feet. And with two wings, they fly. Seraphim in Hebrew means serpent. The seraphim are somehow in the basic form of serpents, or maybe dragons, if you want a visual that is closer to what's being described here. They are flying above the throne of God and calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the entire temple shakes as if it were in an earthquake. Isaiah cries, woe is me, I am destroyed. The Hebrew here also means brought to silence. He can no longer prophesy. For I am a man of unclean speech and I live among a people of unclean speech. Then one of the seraphim takes some tongs and plucks a live coal from the altar before the Lord God and touches Isaiah's mouth with it. And it says, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is blotted out. Now notice there's no reference to Jesus here at all. God simply takes away Isaiah's guilt and blots out his sin, and makes Isaiah holy so he can continue to prophesy. Simple as that. No human sacrifice necessary, no substitution of Jesus for Isaiah. The means to make Isaiah holy already exists and comes straight, in this case, from the burning coals in the altar before the throne of Yahweh. 
God has always made a way for us to draw near to him, even in his utter holiness. I mean, Isaiah is literally having a vision of the throne room of God. That's as close to God as you can get. God has always blotted out our sins so we can be together with him. And the Lord says, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Now notice the us here. That implies a court of beings or persons present. This was a common understanding of the throne room of any superior God in the Mesopotamian and Canaanite cultures. We see references to heavenly courts in several places in scripture and in many extra biblical sources, you know, sources outside of the Bible. So this may or may not be a cultural overlay, this us here. And Amos, I mean Amos, and Isaiah answers, here am I, send me such a famous, famous passage. And the Lord says, go tell this to the people. Go ahead, hear, but do not comprehend. See, but do not perceive. Tell them to go ahead and make their hearts calloused. Otherwise, they might use their eyes to see and their ears to hear and their hearts to understand, for if they did, they would turn to me and be healed. This sounds so much like what the Lord said about the Pharaoh in Egypt, right? We saw back then that simply the presence of the Lord's prophet Moses speaking the Lord's truth was enough to infuriate Pharaoh. The Lord's very presence hardened Pharaoh's heart. And I'm afraid the same thing is happening in Israel and Judah. And you can just hear the dripping sarcasm in the Lord's voice turn into yearning. He's given them eyes and ears and hearts, all these ways to connect with him. And they refuse to use them to turn towards the Lord. If they would just turn towards him, the Lord would heal them in an instant. And Isaiah asks, how long shall I do this? And the Lord says, until everything is destroyed and the land is deserted. Until I have sent everyone far, far away and only a holy seed remains as a stump. Wow, how heartbreaking, right? How far Israel has fallen that that the Lord can find no good in it except for a tiny seed that remains as a stump. That's all the good that's left. But look at that last line of chapter six. A holy seed will remain as a stump. Remember the prophecy from last week about how in the last days, a quote, branch of the Lord, end quote, will be beautiful and glorious. Here's a stump, it's alive, it's a holy seed. A branch will shoot from it in the end times. We need to keep watching for this imagery and following its thread. But for now, this is the end of Isaiah's dream. Jotham is only 25 years old when he becomes king, but he does what is right in the eyes of the Lord, which his father Uzziah had done as well. 
all except for that disastrous foray into the holy place of the temple. Apparently, Uzziah raised his son Jotham to follow the Lord faithfully. I expect being struck with leprosy had quite an impact on how fervently Uzziah believed in Yahweh. In the way of kings of this era, Jotham makes war on the Ammonites and conquers them, exacting an annual payment of tribute. And that's about the only thing we know about him. He dies at the age of 41, and his son, Ahaz, becomes king of Judah. Now, Ahaz is 20 years old when he becomes king, and he is the worst king they've had in a long, long time. He totally follows the pattern of the kings in Israel and forsakes the Lord entirely. He sets up new idols for worshiping Baal and leads Judah in making sacrifices on top of the hills and under every spreading tree. He even sacrifices his own son in the Valley of Hinnom just outside of Jerusalem. The Valley of Hinnom is an ancient site where we've already seen child sacrifice to the idol Molech. King Ahaz regularly burns sacrifices there. Remember the name of this valley. We've run across it before, and we're going to run across it again. Write it down, memorize it. The Valley of Hinnom, a place of burning, especially of making child sacrifices to idols. God hates this place and this practice. Now, Pekah, as you know, is king in Israel, and he is also bad news all the way around. He allies with Rezin, who is currently king of Aram, and together they attack Judah. It says in 2 Chronicles 28 that in one day, Pekah kills 120,000 soldiers of Judah, including King Ahaz's son, as well as the officer in charge of the palace and the king's second in command. Then it says Pekah takes 200,000 women and children captive. Now that sounds pretty exaggerated, but suffice it to say the message the chronicler is trying to convey is that the losses are staggering. Then Rezin and Pekah lay siege to Ahaz in Jerusalem itself. The Lord sends Isaiah to King Ahaz saying, do not lose heart because of the attacks of Rezin of Aram or because Israel has plotted your downfall. I, Yahweh, am here to save and protect Judah. Within 65 years, Israel won't even exist any longer. Go ahead, Ahaz, ask me for a sign so I can prove to you that I am real and I am here to protect Judah. No matter what you ask as a sign, I will do it. Wow. So King Ahaz thinks up a sign so Yahweh can prove he's real. Nope, that's not what happens. You see, if Yahweh is real, then King Ahaz will have to humble himself before God. And that is not going to happen. King Ahaz says, oh, I wouldn't dream of putting Yahweh to the test like that. Oh my gosh. He just thumbed his nose at Yahweh. If I'm Isaiah, I'm looking for some place to hide from the lightning strike. And Isaiah replies, hear me now, house of David. Will you now try the patience of Yahweh? The Lord himself will make up the sign. And here is the sign. 
a virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, meaning God with us. He will know right from wrong while he's still eating baby food. And before that, both Rezin and Pekah will be laid waste. And Ahaz, the Lord will bring upon you and your house a disaster unlike any you have ever seen. He will bring the king of Assyria to destroy you. Isaiah goes on at the end of chapter seven to be very specific about exactly what the king of Assyria will do to Ahaz's private parts. I can't even say it out loud. So since the Lord is going to use Assyria against all three kings, Rezin of Aram, Pekah of Israel, and Ahaz of Judah, they all three ought to be shaking in their boots. Isaiah immediately calls in witnesses at the beginning. This is the beginning of chapter eight. Remember, there were no chapter divisions, really. So this is the same story continued. Isaiah immediately calls in witnesses to write down on a big piece of parchment the name of the baby that has not even been conceived yet. But the name the Lord tells him to write is not Emmanuel, God with us, but is Maher Shalal Hashbaz, which means hasten booty, hurry spoils. It means war is coming. Ahaz turned down the God with us part. So he's going to get to be the spoils of war himself. Clearly, the Lord is bringing the king of Assyria very, very soon. And Aram and Israel are in the crosshairs first. So Isaiah, who has an older son by a previous wife, apparently has just remarried or just taken a second wife, who is called here the prophet wife. And he makes love to her apparently for the first time. And she conceives and gives birth to, you guessed it, a son. And they name him, hasten booty, hurry spoils. And the Lord reiterates his promise that before the boy even says dada or mama, all the wealth of Aram and Israel will be carried off by the king of Assyria with Judah next to be conquered. So if your head is spinning here, it should be. We'll dissect all this in our breakout groups in a minute. King Ahaz of Judah completely ignores Isaiah, of course, and he sends messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, to say, if you will come save me from the kings of Aram and Israel, I will become your vassal. And Ahaz takes all the silver and gold he can find in the temple and in his treasury, and he sends it to Tiglath-Pileser as a gift. Now, there's a lot of things wrong here. Let's start with what's wrong with Israel attacking Judah in the first place. When King Pekah of Israel returns to Samaria after his attack on Judah with all his captives and spoils, he's met at the city gates by a prophet named Obed who, by the way, does not have a book in the Bible. Obed says, the Lord delivered Judah into your hands because of his anger at King Ahaz for leading the people into idol worship of the worst kind. But you, you have gone too far. You have slaughtered the people of Judah and the stench of your rage reaches to heaven. And now you think you have the right to make the people of Judah your slaves? 
you are as guilty of sin as they are. Send your brothers and sisters back to Judah right now, for the Lord's fierce anger rests upon you. Well, the prophet Obed is backed up in this by several leading citizens in Israel. So the Israelite soldiers give up their plunder and their prisoners. Men are appointed who divide the plunder among the captives, making sure they are all clothed and fed and their wounds are treated. Anyone too weak to walk is put on a donkey and they take them all back to Jericho in Judah. So that's better, but there's still something terribly wrong with what King Ahaz has done in Judah. Remember that King Ahaz appealed to the king of Assyria for help during these attacks, not the Lord. Even though the Lord sent Isaiah with a specific, amazing offer of protection, King Ahaz has no regard whatsoever for Yahweh, and he is in extreme distress right now not only from these horrible attacks by Pekah of Israel and Rezin of Aram, but also by the Edomites and the Philistines. He's literally being attacked on all sides, quite obviously because the Lord has withdrawn protection. This is too sudden and too comprehensive to be just a coincidence, at least in my opinion. Well, Tiglath-Pileser accepts Ahaz's offer of payment for protection, and he comes and attacks Damascus, the capital of Aram, and kills Rezin, their king. Between the biblical record and Assyrian archaeological records, we know that when Tiglath-Pileser responds to King Ahaz's request, he not only conquers Aram and puts Rezin to death, but he also takes Phoenicia, Philistia, Galilee, and Gilead. And he deports all these people to far-flung places across the Assyrian Empire, never to return again. This little area right around Samaria is all that's left of Israel at this point. King Pekah of Israel himself survives, but not for long. We'll find out his ignominious end next week. Ahaz of Judah, of course, is thrilled with this outcome. He heads up to Damascus to meet up with Tiglath-Pileser, where apparently he's wined and dined and has a fabulous time sucking up to the great king of Assyria. While he's there, Ahaz makes a sketch of an altar he sees in Damascus and sends it to Uriah the priest to build a replica and put in the courtyard of the temple. It's so big, they have to move the altar of the Lord that I've circled here. Uh, They have to move the Lord's altar to make room for this idol altar. And by the time Ahaz gets back to Jerusalem, the new pagan altar is ready, and Ahaz makes sacrifices on it and orders that from now on, this is where all offerings and sacrifices will be made. Ahaz then proceeds to dismantle the temple itself and anything in it that might conceivably offend the king of Assyria. He basically turns the temple into a temple to the gods of Assyria. And this seems like a good stopping place for today. It's kind of depressing, a little more than a little scary. And 
There were things today that bear more thought, especially that passage about the virgin conceiving and bearing a son. If you come from any sort of traditional church background, you've likely heard the Christmas story of a virgin conceiving and giving birth to a son. The story is right there in Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. It's the story of Jesus' birth. And specifically, it says about Joseph and Mary and Jesus that all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet that a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. But then of course, Mary's baby isn't actually named Emmanuel, he's named Jesus. And in the Isaiah version, the baby isn't named Emmanuel either. He's named Hasten Booty Hurry Spoils. Now this is puzzling on a lot of levels. How in the world did this prophecy to King Ahaz of Judah end up in the Gospel of Matthew. What could Ahaz possibly have to do with Jesus? And why wasn't either baby named Emmanuel? We'll look at all of this in our breakout sessions. Be sure um, to go directly to question one in the study guide. I did put the um, scripture references on the first page in case you want to look back at them. Uh, but don't spend time rereading them unless you need to. Go straight to the questions. Yay. Turn your mics and videos back on. And uh, Gail, this yeah. is hard stuff. It is hard stuff. Talk to me. We were stumped. Oh, yeah. Okay. We <laughs> okay. We what had a did, lot of theories, but nothing concrete. Nothing made <laughs> sense. Did anybody come up with anything? I no. think that, uh, uh, you know, history repeating itself with a very strong sign. Yeah. God. Okay. Well, in that case, um, perhaps I did not do a good enough job at phrasing these questions. I'm going to share my screen one more time. What I want you to differentiate between is the prophecy, okay, and as opposed to the sign as opposed to the response as opposed to the results. Okay. Let's leave, let's leave the prophecy for a moment. Let's go to the sign. Okay. What was the sign going to be in every case? Virgin giving birth. A virgin conceives, and it could be a newlywed young woman, whatever, you know, I'm not going to argue about that. <laughs> and bears a son named Emmanuel. I'm going to fix all this in a minute so you can see it. Okay. All right. Uh-huh. So move her up, move some of this down so we can talk about it. All right. So if that's the sign, 
What was the response the first time? First off, tell me, tell me the two the person involved the first time who was who was responding. Isaiah's oh. wife. Ahaz. King Ahaz. Okay. Oh. Right. And 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 he, and what King Ahaz did is what did he do? What was his response? He didn't trust the Lord. He made a deal with. Uh, the, other, the other two kings. That's right. So he rejected Yahweh's offer of protection. Okay. So um, let's move this guy out. This is clunky, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So so then the next time, who is God? talking to in the Matthew passage? Joseph. Joseph. Mary does not get a voice in the gospel of Matthew. And what did Joseph do? He took Mary as his wife. That's right. He trusted trusted the angel. trusted he trusted. So Joseph trusted, accepted, obeyed, right? Um, So now let's back up to the prophecy. If the prophecy, if the sign is a virgin shall conceive and bear a son named Emmanuel, what was the original prophecy to Ahaz? protection of judah yes yahweh will be with you is with you and will protect his people ah so now it's starting to make a little more sense because we get screwed up thinking the prophecy was the virgin conceives and bears a son named Emmanuel. Uh-huh. That was the sign, not the prophecy. In other and, words, that was the sign that the prophecy was true? Yes, exactly. And, and therefore, the, and the whole sign was a virgin will conceive and bear a son and this son is named God with us okay so this is so does it not necessarily pardon so then it does it not necessarily mean that they would actually give the baby that name that's just the name that God is using to say this, you know, when you see this virgin conceive and bear a son, remember that I am with you. I will protect you. Yes, exactly. Uh-huh. We said that, didn't we, Marlene? Yeah. <laughs> so now let's go down and look at the results. So the results were with Ahaz, um, with Ahaz, what was the baby? Ahaz, we've already said, we rejected the offer of protection. So what was the baby named in Ahaz's situation? Ace and booty, whatever you said it. Ace and booty. Hurry spoils, <laughs> yeah, right? Like that. that is the result of 
Ahaz rejecting Yahweh's offer of protection. He rejected, he wasn't rejecting the sign. He was rejecting the prophecy. He was rejecting Yahweh, the offer, the statement that Yahweh is your God and is with you. But what was the result from Joseph who, who, who trusted, accepted, and obeyed? What was the baby's name? What did the baby's name mean this time? God saves. Yahweh saves. Part of part of my difficulty was I couldn't even what I couldn't figure out what that phrase hasten booty hurry spoils even means. Oh, that was simply God saying, uh, get ready. The king of Assyria is about to come and demolish you. To Ahaz, it probably meant this is what we want. No, right? no, no. It, 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 what that baby's name meant in this context was, okay, you've made your choice. War is on its way. You will be destroyed. And if you read the last verse of chapter seven, it's very clear what that is going to entail for us personally. We were nowhere near these things. <laughs> <laughs> and and I and I kind of meant for you to wrestle with it a little bit. I did not expect you to get this because nobody seems to get this. I have never heard anyone differentiate between the prophecy and the sign. I have a question. <laughs> what would have happened if Ahaz had trusted the Lord? Would that baby be named different? Exactly. Yes. I'm confused with that. <laughs> no, you're not confused. You're thinking exactly right. Because the <laughs> offer was there. And Ahaz rejected it. The baby was named to make clear what the result of the choice was. So, so here's a question. Um, with the first baby, um, would that baby have had a similar role to what Jesus ended up having when Jesus was here? Um, or would... You know, would all of the stuff that happened with Jesus have happened hundreds of years earlier if Ahaz had listened or not? Those are all great questions. All we can say is maybe. maybe. <laughs> well, I would say, actually, it's um, Isaiah's son, not, not a divine birth. Does that make sense? Right, right, exactly. And, and but my point here is that we focus on the the virgin conceiving. And um, that was it was important to Matthew to establish that Jesus was the Messiah and he's the king and, you know, this whole virgin conceiving, all of that was important to what Matthew was trying to accomplish with his gospel. And I'm, I'm just saying that what if the point, what if the whole, what if the point is not that a virgin conceives? What if that's just the sign? What if the point 
of the whole Bible, what if the entire story from the very beginning page to the very last thing in the new heaven and the new earth, what if from beginning to end, the entire story can be summed up in one word, Emmanuel? God with us. Wow. So, so here's another question. <laughs> just, just to keep muddying the waters. Was it that uncommon? Was it that uncommon in that day? Since virgin at that time meant, as you said in your notes, a newly. Um, yeah, engage or newly it's married a new woman. Mile young woman is what it means. It's a woman of yeah. ripe for bearing children. Yeah. So there had to be hundreds, if not thousands, of them giving birth at any given time. Yes. How are these two virgins? Why is the spotlight on them, and how do we know that the spotlight is on the right virgins? Exactly. Damn. Which was. Damn. Go ahead, Woody. I hear you. And why is that a sign from God? If, if as Marlene said, there may be hundreds of young women giving birth, why is that a particular sign? Yes, exactly. So that's why I pointed you back in question um, uh, two to look at chapter 7, 10 through 8, 8 and see that when God gave this sign, Isaiah immediately got out a piece of paper and wrote the name of the child that would be that son. And then went out and, 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 and had relations with his wife and named his child. Was he, did, did he go and pick out this young woman and marry her? specifically after this or was she already we don't know um, there's no there's no detail but we do know that the moment that Ahaz made his choice and the Lord announced the sign Isaiah had witnesses called in to write on a piece of paper here's the here here here's the results the child that will be conceived will be named Hasten Booty Hurry Spoils he picked out, uh, you know, the Lord told him to do this. And he, the Lord picked which woman and which child in the Ahaz situation. And what Matthew is doing is identifying the woman and the child in his situation. What is beautiful about this is that Matthew realized that Judah had left money on the table. Matthew realized the Lord's offer in item number one here, the prophecy was still open, available, and unfulfilled. Wow. That's why, that's why Jesus is, is and has been called Emmanuel. Exactly. Even though he was not named. And this, I hope, explains to you why he was not named Emmanuel, which has confused me forever, right? 
I picked up on that faster than the rest of it <laughs> because God is called a lot of names. Yep. I mean, Yahweh is like the main name, but God has called a lot of things. Um, and so is you know. Jesus. Right. Jehovah Jireh, you know. Right. All and say, Prince of Peace, Mighty Counselor. We're going to run right. across a bunch of names. Well, Emmanuel is just another thing that he has called. Right. And but he's called one. Emmanuel because of this one passage. Right. Okay, but Gail, a minute ago, you said that's why he was called Jesus. I, yes. I don't understand what you meant. Okay, he's called Jesus. If you look here, the, the prophecy is Yahweh will be with you, is with you, and will protect you. The results of our response to that, in Joseph's case, Joseph accepted that prophecy, believed the sign that God is with us. And therefore, Yahweh, in Joseph's case, fulfills the prophecy to protect his people to be with us, to save us from our pell-mell rush to self-destruction. Okay, so the important point is not that he was called by a different name than Emmanuel, but that he was called Jesus. Yeah, that, the, yes, for us, that's the point that fulfills and thus fulfills the prophecy. That name is directly linked. The name in number four is directly linked to number one, the prophecy. And that's why Matthew says that's how this prophecy got fulfilled. Yeah. So a point, you know, I think if Ahaz had accepted uh naming a sign, what were the chances he would uh, choose a baby born of a virgin? <laughs> you know, I, I don't know about what ifs. I can only tell you what, what I'm telling you the story as it is. So yeah. what ifs don't, don't help me much. Um, Donna has uh, asked a question. So does the death of Jesus in the future in payment for all the world's sins come into this prophecy or is it a whole different thing? And, and the whole idea of Jesus being a payment for our sins is part of what we've been learning about in these last few lessons, that there wasn't a need for payment for our sins in the sense that people mean it with Jesus. God always, even in this lesson, there was an example where God, you know, there was a necessity for Isaiah to, to draw near to God. And so God made that possible. Nobody had to get killed. There were no sacrifices. Jesus wasn't in the picture. It was just a live coal from the altar. And we had another example of that in the prior week. And, and it was part of our beginning to understand that being in the presence of God is to be in this holy burning, this holy spirit where all the dross is burned out and all that's left is good. And that that is not a bad thing that kills us. That is a good thing that concentrates us and purifies us and brings us life. Gail, uh-huh. I, I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around this of what you were just saying because of one specific verse. 
-hmm. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission for sins. Now, I know we haven't got there yet. <laughs> yep. So we'll talk about particular verses when we get to them in their context. Okay. But I just would say that we have seen here in this very lesson that there was no shedding of blood when Isaiah's sins were blotted out. That's the part that's confusing me. <laughs> yeah. And so what I would say is, is learn, watch for these things. This lesson and last lesson both had things in them like that. And we've seen others where the Lord purifies something and blood is not involved, you know? Well, you, know it, you know, sorry, but you, you know, of course God can forgive sins and Jesus, uh, where they talked, of course it was heresy for Jesus. Jesus could forgive sins. Mm -hmm. And he gave us um, that ability. Jesus said we could forgive sins too. Whatever you forgive will be forgiven. So, so looking back at the history of Israel up to this point of the, the people of Israel, you know, the nation, the sacrifices that were taking place at the temple and before that at the um, tabernacle, the, um, tabernacle um, was that more because that was something understood by the people because everybody in the whole area were offering sacrifices to their gods and God knew that this was something that the people of Israel would understand as a sacred um, sign of their relationship to Yahweh. And so Yahweh said, yeah, okay, you, you know what this means. Therefore, um, I'll accept these different animal sacrifices. And it really didn't have anything to do with innocent blood needing to be shed in order for sins to be forgiven. That kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Interesting. Yeah, mind being blown. This was this was never ever taught when we were growing up. We talked a little bit about that in our group. That it seemed like um, this stuff that we covered today, none of us ever heard taught either. And we're wondering if it was because it's easier to keep things simple and certain to keep people in line in the church. And I'm all about fuzzy lines. I don't <laughs> like lines. I like questions. You're not growing if you're not asking uncomfortable questions. The, the spirit moves just like moves us more easily if we're in motion. That's why physics works like it does. Inertia, you know, you know, um, we're all of our physical world is a pattern of the spiritual world. It's just a shadow of the spiritual world. It's easier for the spirit to move us if we will let go of the bar we're holding on to and step out. I, I, this, for one thing, I was thinking that I, I, we started out and I called this whole thing a gentle ramble through the Bible. And we did gently ramble through the Bible, but we've gotten to the foothills of the prophets. 
<laughs> and we have come to the mountain of Isaiah and we have built our muscles and our tools and our abilities to scale that mountain. And now you all are standing near the top of it, looking out and recognizing things happening in the distance. There are other big peaks that we will scale, but we are equipped to do it. And it will make all the difference in the world when we come back down the other side in the valley. Yeah, but Gail, you know what happens to me when I'm on the top of a mountain? I get vertigo, and that's where I'm at right now. <laughs> that's what you're experiencing, right? I'm just glad to be your Sherpa, that's all. <laughs> Alan, welcome back. <laughs> oh. So so we had a, a brief discussion also about Matthew and the way Matthew was constructed, you know, to sort of, you know, start with the lineage to prove that Jesus was descended from David to fulfill that prophecy of the Messiah. And then over the course of the narration saying, okay, Jesus did this or said this in order to fulfill X prophecy, um, sort of building the case. Um, that seems, a, now I know that, the gospel, many of the gospels were not written by the people that they were named after. Um, is that the case with actual Matthew versus the gospel of Matthew? Because this seems like a really in-depth theological and, and almost legal argument for a tax collector. Yeah, no, we, you know, whoever it was called Matthew wrote Matthew. Um, he, there is evidence that he was like the chronicler and the person who, people who wrote Second Kings, pulling from other sources. We'll get to all of that. But what we can tell from the things that you mentioned is that Matthew was speaking to Jews. He was speaking to under, people who understood and knew these scriptures and cared about them. And so if you think your mind is blown, when you already know who Jesus is, think about how the Jews felt. Bye, Julia. Think about how the Jews felt when they heard Matthew say, and by the way, we left money on the table. And Jesus fulfills that prophecy. That fits with Matthew being a tax collector, too. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) totally well that's what one of the things we were talking about was as a tax collector you know like when mary and joseph had to go to bethlehem to be taxed um you know they had no genealogies it it was a big thing Hmm. and Mm -hmm. um a lot of matthew has to do with the genealogy but if i remember correctly is not the genealogy in Matthew is Joseph's genealogy. And is that? Yeah, Luke? we'll get to all that. Luke had a different genealogy. But, we'll get to all that. Yeah. And I want to focus but, this time on the whole virgin shall conceive and help you all see that that wasn't the point. Which is what we've been taught our entire life, that it was the main point. point. And it's not the main point. The Bible can be summed up in the word Emmanuel. That, I got goosebumps when you said that the first time. I'm like, wow. And that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, Gail, on 
on your question three, who was Isaiah's prophecy in chapter seven and eight directed to? Could you address that? Yeah, that was King Ahaz. So Isaiah was actually speaking to King Ahaz of Judah. Okay. Yeah. So what I was trying to do, and and, um, I probably, if I was doing this again, might rephrase these questions to get you all to separate one, two, three, and four, like I drew out on the board for you. I did a poor job of of laying that out in the questions because my mind was hop, skip, and jumping. Um, But, but... uh, Actually, you I made don't think we could have got it kept as a collective. Yeah, <laughs> I agree with Julia. And well, you made us think. It, what's interesting is that we have the lenses that we have on, that we have had on our whole lives are so strong that it's hard to see any other way. It's hard to see what's right in front of us. We've been indoctrinated. Yeah. yeah. literally yeah so that's why i keep trying to bring all this back down to this basic god just wants to be with you that is it that is all and god will do that no matter what it takes he told ahaz you pick the sign i don't care whatever you pick that'll be it and ahaz wouldn't do it because then ahaz would have to admit it was God. And so God picked the sign. Read what Donna just said. (laughs) If we asked questions, we were going to hell and that's about it. I mean, I, that's what we got told, you know, if if you're questioning, you shouldn't be questioning this, just trust. Yeah. That goes to that book by Peter ends the sin of certainty. I'm going to have to get that book. Yeah. yeah. It's, 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 if, if I have not changed in five years, I have done something wrong. If my faith has not deepened or changed or redirected or learned something or met with new people or been enriched in new ways, then I'm, you know, clearly not following the spirit because the spirit moves with the wind, right? So this is a lot, it's a lot to take in, but it's important. So I think we'll probably, unless somebody has other questions, we'll probably stop here for today. <laughs> you poor guys. I feel like there's been an egg beater running in your head. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot to think together. It's a, it's a lot to think about. And, and let this let the pieces circle out so i will put yeah. the, i will put that little chart of the one through four in your study guide for you so you have it again so you Thanks. can refer back to it yeah so. thank you uh-huh. yeah, was a lot to digest bye-bye good stuff gail thanks